Hi everybody. Today is actually the first anniversary of Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast, and I cannot think of a better person to help me celebrate when you're podcasting than the extraordinary Hope Edelman. Hope is as generous and kind and smart and thoughtful as so many of my peers had told me to expect. She became an instant friend, and this session together was such a place of learning and inspiration for me. I know you're going to love the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to give us ratings over on Apple Podcasts so that we can get this episode out to as many ears as possible. Thanks so much. Here we go. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and this is such a privilege and an honor for me today because I am sitting down to talk to Hope Edelman, whose name you'll know because I've referenced her book. It's on all of my pages and all of her work. She deeply influenced me with several of her books in my healing after my mom died. I want to read you just a little bit of her bio. She's been writing, speaking, and leading workshops and retreats in the bereavement field for more than 25 years. She was 17 when she lost her mother to breast cancer and 40 when her father died. And those events inspired her to offer grief education and support those who can otherwise not receive it. Her first book, Motherless Daughters, which if you don't already have, you need to go run and get, was a number one New York Times bestseller and appeared on multiple bestseller lists worldwide. Hope's most recent book, the after grief, there's a link to it and how to purchase it on my website. I'm just going to say after grief is the, is the book. I, I read probably 60 grief books. And then I just let myself stop reading after I got to after grief. Aww. It is one we're going to talk a little bit about it today, but you know, hope offers an innovative new language for discussing the long arc of loss. She's published six additional books, including motherless daughters, and the memoir, The Possibility of Everything. And Hope, you also published a book about Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez. <laughs> it's a bit of an outlier in my in my list, but yeah, I did. <laughs> how, how I, not that I don't want to talk about anything else, but how did that come to be? Was that a 1980s obsession? Do you know that family? That is, I have a lot of your books. That is one that I didn't know existed until I was looking at your bio. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago and I didn't have another book idea. And my agent called me up and said, Hey, would you ever consider doing a collaboration? And I love working with other people. So I said, what is it? And she said, Martin Sheila and Emilio Estevez are looking for someone to help them tell their father son's story. So I didn't write about them as much as I wrote it with them. I talked with them, they spoke their stories and then we wrote it together. Do I remember that they walked Camino together? Is that a, is that what the book is about? Yeah. They made a movie called The Way. It's beautiful. I recommend it. Yeah. About a father walking the Camino de Santiago um, all the way from the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela after he learns that his adult son from whom he was estranged has died. Um, And his son, I think if I remember correctly, the son died while walking the Camino. Mm. So he takes his son's ashes on that walk. And yeah, so scenes from making the movie are woven throughout their story of their 50 year father son relationship. And they're a fascinating family. And, you know, between the two of them were so many movies that have been made and they're great guys. So I had a wonderful time writing that book. 
Wow. I didn't finish reading your bio because I interrupted myself, but you do, you have a journalism degree and I know that you've been a writer for a long time. And I think one of the things about being a journalist is being curious and being interested in people, right? And that's one of the sort of hearts of telling stories. But I also think when you're, when you are someone who has spent a long time studying loss, really what you know is that you're also studying love. And so the notion of writing a book about any, any father, son, mother, daughter, you know, it's probably all, it's probably all kind of the same wheelhouse, I would imagine. Well, you're, you're writing about human relationships. Yeah, writing about what they mean to people and how they come apart, but also how new ones begin in the recovery process from grief. So yes, that is, I remember, you know, when I was in journalism school, I interviewed for a internship at Newsweek. Mm. And in the course of the internship, the interviewer asked me what I most like writing about. And I must've been like, I don't know, 20 years old. And and I said, I, I like writing about people. I write, like writing about people and, and the way they live and the connections between them. And I guess it wasn't a good enough answer because I didn't get the internship or a good enough answer for Newsweek, but it was a, a, an honest answer from me. And that's yeah. what I've always written about and what's always interested me. Yeah. So you don't, you don't just write though. You run retreats and you have calls and you, so if you don't mind, I assume everyone in my audience knows who you are, but if you could just sort of tell them where you, where you step into this world and, and maybe even sort of how your arc of, of teaching and learning and educating and supporting people has sort of changed and where you're at with it today. Well, like you said, I began as a magazine journalist, as an editor, but I had lost my mother when I was 17 years old. She had breast cancer. She died at the age of 42 and I was the oldest of three children. It was 1981 and we were from a very typical 1981 era family, which didn't talk about the loss at all. Stopped talking about her life and her death after she had passed on. There were no bereavement services available at the time. So I went looking for books that could tell me what am I supposed to be feeling and how am I supposed to make it through the rest of my life without a mother or without my mother? And there were none. There were books about mother lost, but they all assumed that the reader would be in her forties or fifties when her mother died, because statistically that was so much more likely. But I started meeting other girls like me slowly, slowly along the way who had also lost mothers when they were young. And, and I noticed we had a lot in common. And I guess about it was been about 10 years later, I, I still hadn't found the book I was looking for. And I was in a graduate writing program at the University of Iowa. So I decided to write it. And from that first book spawned a whole movement around the world that I've been involved in, in one way or another, all these years. And I've written additional books about mother loss, but then a more general book about the long-term effects of bereavement, especially early bereavement. That's the after grief, which yeah. is the book you referenced. Yeah. And like you said, I provide services now as well. So it's kind of like writing is my side hustle now, which is yeah. something I never expected. I never expected the focus of my work to shift in such a profound way. I still write, of course, and I, and I always will, mm -hmm. but I provide services to the early bereaved. So I have done coaching circles every Tuesday and Thursday. I do motherless daughters community calls where women from all over the world call in on Zoom and we discuss different topics. We have guest speakers. They share their stories. They get to meet other women 
whose experiences are similar to theirs. Uh, we have women who, adult women who lost their mothers six months ago, all the way to young women who lost, you know, women in their 20s who lost moms when they were six, to women in their 70s who lost mothers when they were 19. It's a, it's a really intergenerational and international mix. And I lead retreats, four-day retreats from Thursdays to Sundays for women who've lost their mothers and occasionally speak and do workshops. And it's busy. It's a full yeah. service operation around here is what yeah. it feels like. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I know you offer also is, is to that catchment group of young women who have lost mothers. So, which I think is, you know, continues to be really incredibly important. There are some people on Instagram, I'm 47, I've only kind of like learned these new things. And some of them are doing exactly that, which is just using their own personal experience to try to connect with other mm-hmm. women who have lost moms. And you and I both know Barry Liner Grant, and I know she has been talking about the remothering process. How do you have access to being mothered even when your mother is no longer alive. Can you tell me with the recently bereaved, so people who are in that early fresh grief, do you find that themes pop up in your calls? Is it different every time? Has the impact of COVID shown up and and you're hearing different things from people in terms of being isolated or is early loss sort of early early loss well women who lost mothers in the first covid year whether it was to covid or not did not have access to the social support or the familiar rituals that they always imagined if they had imagined they would have access to if they were to lose their mothers So the isolation and the dislocation for them was much more profound or wouldn't even really exist for anyone under other circumstances. You know, the family couldn't come in, funerals had to be small. So a lot of those processes are delayed. So what I'm seeing in these calls are women who are just getting to scatter their mother's ashes now, for example, even though she died several years ago or planning the celebrations of life now, even though her death was a year and a half ago. And so I don't know that that necessarily has led to prolonged mourning, Yeah, but it has led to a prolonged, you know, ritualistic experience for them. And then of course, you know, a year and a half later when they have the memorial event, it brings up a lot for them that they may have experienced six months or a year earlier, if they had postponed it for just a short period of time. You know, you bring up something that I think is so important and something that gets talked about and around, but not necessarily like nailed down. There's often a lot of language around like what the right way to grieve is, right? And people on this podcast know we don't talk about the stages of grief because bless her, that's not a thing. But, but I think there is this idea, like I will be talking to folks, interviewing folks, and they'll say, well, you know, I couldn't manage to get to a therapist. You know, it took me 10 years. It took me five years. And as a, as somebody who's trauma informed, I sort of believe in the, the natural progression, whatever it is, and that I trust the natural progression. Mm -hmm. What I find sometimes is scratchy is that the people around the folks I'm talking to or my clients or even me and my own experience 
have different ideas about how things are supposed to go down. Sure. So I'm curious for you, when you're talking to those folks who are in early grief, maybe even the ones who've had the delayed mourning in COVID, are there ways that folks are able to find support that is affirming around that? Like other than just saying, which is what I do with my clients, listen, there's no right one way, 10 years later, maybe the right way for you, but your folks are really seeking out sort of support. So how do they support each other? in that, in those calls? How do how does that happen? Well, the chat box is incredibly active. I, I mean, I'm leading the calls, so I can only see the chat boxes later, but they're having com- whole conversations with each other. And then of course, I don't know what kind of private messaging is happening either. I only see the public messaging, but the calls are 90 minutes. The first hour is when we talk about a topic and we have discussions and I might do one-on-one coaching or we have a guest speaker, there's Q and A's. But the final 30 minutes is always an open conversation. It's a facilitated open conversation in the big group. The co-facilitator, Jenna Pasquale, just leads a conversation about anything the women want to talk about in that time. And and she just makes sure that whoever wants to speak or has their hand up gets a chance to talk. But that's when there's a lot of group interaction. And I I typically take a breakout room, which Mm -hmm. is a subset of the group. And so I might take a breakout group just for motherless mothers to further discuss the, mm. the week's topic or for women who were under age seven when their moms died or for women whose mothers died within the past year. You know, we do all kinds of breakout rooms. Amazing. Jenna does breakout rooms for single women or women of color because these are her areas of yeah. um, expertise as a coach. And so there's a lot of interaction that happens there, but wow, Megan, when you talk about, you know, that, that folks have ideas of how things should go down, we can talk about that for an hour and a half or more. We need three podcasts for that because yeah, the cultural messaging is so intense. It's so pervasive, you know, it's so infiltrative. If that's a word, we internalize the messages that we hear around us and start believing things should be a certain way. And those messages are imposed on us from the media, from our individual cultures, races, ethnicities, religions, and our family communication patterns, our genders. There's so many different factors that, that sort of like go into the, the, each person's blender and then it, it creates this, you know, it spits out this idea of what grief should look like. The, what I hear most from the women that I work with. And the majority of them lost moms when they were children or teenagers, but the adults often say this too, especially when they become my clients a decade, two decades, three decades after a loss. loss. They say, I never grieved my mother. When women come to a retreat and say, I never properly grieved my mother. And I always ask, well, what do you think grief should have looked like? And their image of it is like, you know, the big screen image of grief. I should have lamented loudly. I should have cried, but I lived in a family that didn't support emotional displays. And so what I work with them on is a paradigm shift because I really believe that we grieve to the best of our ability at any point in time. And sometimes our ability is very limited. And that's also true for children. And so when someone who was nine when her mom dies and comes to me at 35 and says, I never grieved my mom. I say, let's talk about what you were doing when you were nine. 
when you were 10, when you were 11? What makes you think that wasn't a form of trying to work through your grief in that an immature way because you were just a child? And I don't mean immature in, the, in, a, in a critical or negative no, no, sense. No. I mean, an undeveloped no, sense. Yeah. Undeveloped, you know, your, your, your cognitive and your emotional abilities had not yet matured. So little you did the best she could to feel better. And maybe that was, a, you know, a way of grieving, maybe, maybe rudimentary and messy forms of self-care were your attempts to grieve the loss. I mean, everyone's attempts are different. And so when they start thinking like, okay, maybe I grieved to, as much as I felt I could or felt safe grieving or was allowed to when I was 12, that doesn't mean I did, because they come in, they feel like they did maybe they didn't really miss their they mom because they didn't cry. Yeah. yeah. did it wrong somehow. I work um, probably 50, 50 men and women. And particularly with men, I will get the question. And this, this podcast actually used to be called grieve is a verb because people will say to me, I cried at the funeral. What, what else is grieving? What does that mean? And so you and I just had a moment off mic where we were talking about leaving homes that were in our lives for decades and decades and decades. I, I used that image with clients. I used it even before I, I did it myself in packing up my parents' house. But you know, every single movement of every single thing, throwing things away, clearing things out, making decisions about what went to whom and where and which was gonna get donated, every, every second of that was grieving. I wasn't crying, it was mostly annoying but I wasn't crying, but it was grief work. One of my big soapboxes is that I actually do think that there's a lot we could be and should be teaching in schools, in some setting, the same way that we teach about puberty, we could be talking about the life stage of loss and particularly talking about, and I had Mary Frances O'Connor who wrote The Grieving Brain. Oh, she's great. She's amazing. And she was, you know, just really helping my audience walk through, listen, the data that your brain has to incorporate and learn very quickly is overwhelming to your mind, particularly with sudden loss. And here are the side effects of that. You know, you have brain fog and you have poor word recall and you have, and that psychoeducation, I also had a really significant loss in the eighties and I'm stunned anytime I talk to somebody about sort of the ethos of that time for most families, which was kids, we don't talk to kids about death. And so just utter and complete silence. Never, I was, there was a significant loss in my family when I was eight. No adult spoke to me about that loss until I was 24 years old and went to therapy for the first time. And when my therapist talked to me about it, I kept looking over my shoulder like, This is really not what we're supposed to be talking about. So I appreciate that part of what you're describing is helping people really understand, just literally understand what does it mean to be a griever over time? Can you, can you talk a little bit about what, what in your book after grief, you, you do this beautiful job of sort of talking about the narrative and the way in which owning a narrative and creating a narrative Mm -hmm. is important to maybe just a framework around loss. Can you talk a little bit about how you use that and, and what that maybe is for folks who aren't familiar with it? Yes, I can. Well, I was very influenced by the work of a psychologist named John Harvey, 
who's one of the few people who has studied extensively the intersection between storytelling and bereavement. Yeah. Why is it that telling stories about our losses can have healing benefits? Yeah. And I love that you spoke with Mary Frances O'Connor. I really, really admire her work. Yeah. And she talks about, you know, what we call grief brain yep. in the lay world, right? Yep. That's the mental aspect of what grief does to you. And uh, this is a, a good, I'm going to go a little out of the way to get back to answer your question. But in the after grief, I talk about what I call the five elements of grief. Yeah. And the five elements of grief are the mental, the emotional. Those are the two that we think about all the time when we think about grief, that we have trouble concentrating and remembering that we think about the loved one all the time, ruminating or intrusive thoughts, that we're sad, you know, we're crying, we're externalizing emotions. But grief is also very physical. That's the third element. You know, we know that sometimes people sleep too much or sleep too little or eat too much or eat too little. It can affect our heart rates. You know, the stress hormones flood our system. We have all kinds of physical responses. And again, very individualized, but still... There's a spiritual aspect of grief as well. And I don't mean just the religious aspect, although that is part of it. I mean that losing someone you love often creates an existential crisis. I put that in the category of spiritual because what happened? Where did they go? They were here yesterday. They're not here today. How do I find them again? Will I, how can I, you know, still feel connected to them? I still feel connected to them, but they're not here. Where do I put that love? To me, that's all part of the spiritual response to grief. But the fifth is the social. And the social is so important. That sense of grieving in community that was really lost in the 20th century was very much a part of grief before the 19th century, the idea of the village coming together to mourn the passing of one of its own. And that was really taken away from us during yep. COVID. Yep. You know, interestingly, just for like a tiny bit of history, it was also taken away during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1819. But it came back in the form of fun- funerals returned, but also memorial services, eulogies, celebrations of life, you know, in the latter 20th century as a, as a, an extension or a replacement for a, a funeral service. But that was taken away during COVID. And after, you know, COVID, God willing, settles down, yeah. how are we going to amp up the social aspect of grief? Because now we so crucially understand how important it is. And that's the premise behind the community calls is let's bring women together so they can grieve in community with other women who understand what they are going through. So how does storytelling fit into this and, you know, creating a narrative? Well, John Harvey's work says, um, adjusting to a loss is very much a mental process. I imagine Mary Frances O'Connor would agree that yeah. You are you go back and you go through this review period where you're reviewing all the facts and the connections between them and you're putting together a story in your mind that will make sense that feels intellectually and emotionally complete because you're trying to make sense of what happened meaning making comes after sense making first you're trying to make sense of what happened then you're trying to create a sense of meaning around it but John Harvey says well you know this is a three step process one is that we review all the facts And then we test different versions of the story. We might do that in our head. We might do that in therapy. We might, 
do it in, by writing. There are all different ways to test it out to see what feels like the real story, what feels like really happened. And, and, and within families, people are going to come up with different stories oh, 100%. on the same events because this is you know a matter of interpretation. But he says that the third aspect of story development is the most important for long-term healing. And he says that's confiding. It's sharing your story with a trusted, compassionate other. It can be a group of people. It can be in a public way, like by standing on a stage and, you know, like doing the moth, for example, or it can be just sitting down one-on-one talking with an empathetic friend. But he says it's critically important to be able to do that in some way. And so my work is all about let's, how do we bring the social element back in? How do we help people share their stories? Especially if they didn't get to do that when they were younger, you can do it later and still have benefits. And what Harvey's research found is that the listeners often derive as much benefit as the speakers, because then it becomes a reflexive and interactive process and they are remembering past losses of their own. It's allowing them the opportunity to review the facts from their own losses. And that's what goes on in these community calls. And at my retreats are what the first thing we do at a retreat when the women gather, well, the first thing we do is have dinner and then we do introductions. But on the Friday morning in the retreat, our very first activity is what Claire Bidwell Smith and I developed together. We created these retreats together. We call it story witnessing. And we go around the circle and depending on how many women we have at the retreat, everyone gets between five and seven minutes to speak about anything that they have been wanting to talk about around the loss of their mom. Uninterrupted, they can, they can take up all the time. They can take, you know, three of the five minutes. They can take all of the five or seven minutes and the stage is theirs. That's a long time to talk when you're not being interrupted, but it also goes very fast if you've been waiting 20 years to to be listened to. But you can hear the proverbial pin drop in the room because the other women are listening so closely and holding that space so safely, you know, and, and so tightly for the speaker. And they often say afterwards that they got as much from listening as they did from speaking because they felt like, oh, thank God, someone else, you know, feels that way. Somebody else in the world has had those thoughts. I'm not the only one. And it reminds them that they are part of the larger flow of humanity, that losing a mother is a very individual experience. The only people in the world who lost your mother as a mother are you and your siblings or just you if you're an only child. And, but there is a commonality to that experience and, and, and they feel less alone and that in and of itself is very healing. So that's a very long answer to your question, but. Oh my God, it was such a gorgeous, it was such a gorgeous answer. And it, you know, I wrote a million things down. I could go in 70 different directions, but, but what at the root, you know, and there's always so much overlap in the way that I've trained as a trauma therapist. And I'm always careful to say, you know, a loss is a trauma. It doesn't mean you're going to be traumatized by it. You know, the trauma is the event traumatized is the meaning that your system makes of the event. Mm. And the notion that we really do end up feeling 
alone because we are is so important. It's so critical. You know, it drives me crazy when people say you're not alone, because I think what that can accidentally do is minimize the fact that you are alone, that even though I have five brothers and sisters, no one lost my relationship with my mother except me. And so I think when you're talking about this community element, you're giving people the opportunity, both the speakers and the listeners to have those, to have those me too moments. It's not going to be a whole me too, but it's going to be flickers in each one. And I think, you know, again, I think, I think Mary Frances O'Connor does teach a, a, a class on grief and loss and death where, where she is at, at her school, which I think is Austin. And she and I have talked a little bit about it. Uh, one of the things that I think is really critical to teach both grievers and people who are trying to support grief is that the social connection is so unbelievably and unbearably critical and isolation, isolating yourself and feeling isolated are also truisms in grief. So if your friend went through a breakup and said, well, I don't feel like coming out tonight, you would likely pressure her a little you might say, come on. Okay. Well, I'll let you not come out tonight, but you know, you got to get out there. What happens a lot in grief. And I'm sure you see this is somebody says, I don't feel like coming out. And they say, okay, I'll check in on you. And they don't check back in for two weeks. They say, well, she wanted her privacy in her. And so being able to say to folks, let's talk about what it means to, to not to, to seek out community where you can feel a me too. So there's some, there are people who understand, they speak the native language of grief. It's their grief and your grief, but it's all Portuguese. And also you live in your world with people who don't inherently get it. And so how do we navigate a little bit, both advocate for ourselves as grievers, but also help the folks around us who are trying to support us. Because one of the things that comes up in my work with folks is that people will say, I didn't know what to say to them. So I said nothing. Mm. I, I was worried about saying the wrong thing or making it worse. And then they'll have an example and they'll have an example. My, my brother-in-law's sister lost her best friend and I said something to her and it was the wrong thing. Or after that happened, she didn't leave the house for four years, they'll have an example of something that scares them about grieving. And that example will be the thing that sort of shuts them down. And so again, I sort of feel like with education, we would be able to say, listen, that's not the norm, what you're talking about. That's, that's maybe one of those percentages that's outside of the norm, but also it's still our job to be supportive, not just wish we could be supportive. And so there's something about in your community calls, which feels to me like, wow, those people would really have a good sense of being able to turn and say, let me tell, let, just ask them, how was Hope's call? What did you find helpful about the call? And you're going to learn. When people say to me, I don't know how to support someone who's grieving. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I say, why don't you let them take the lead, you know? You just Don't calling up me. and saying, what do you want to talk about? What do you most want to talk about? Or what do you wish you could talk about more? What's something you wish someone would ask you that nobody's asking you? Let's talk about that. I love and then things. it opens the door for them to discuss whatever's on their minds. It, 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 it's saying, let's both give you permission to talk about what you want to talk about instead of me guessing wrong yeah. or you feeling like you need to hide something or take care of me. What do you, what do you, 
wish that someone would ask you about that nobody's asking you about? That's the best interview question too. At the end of an interview, when someone says to me, what's a question you wish people would ask you that nobody ever asks? I love that question. I've only gotten it about two or three times, but I try to incorporate it into some of my interviews now when I'm interviewing somebody else. We're coming to the end of the interview. Is there a question that you were hoping I would ask you that I didn't ask? Is there something you've been waiting to talk about that I didn't ask about? Or wanting to wanting to add, it's better than. Is there anything else you'd like to add at yeah. the end? Right. Because then I, my mind goes everywhere right. at once. But, you know, what's the big. question that you always wish an interviewer would ask you that nobody ever asks? A great question. I have. I think it's. I think there's seven questions somewhere up on my Instagram that I give people, and I've I've even had therapists call and ask me. Uh, you know, what are your questions again? And 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 they literally are just questions to ask grievers. And one of them is. What have you been surprised that someone did for you that was helpful? You know, what, what was a surprise that you, and also, is there someone who's currently doing something that is not helping at all? You get a lot of information with those questions. And, you know, imagine if, imagine if we taught a class and all it was, was Hope Edelman's been doing this for a long time. And what she and her group say they really want to do is have seven interrupt uninterrupted minutes to talk about their own experience. Yeah. And that's your job as a supporter is to figure out how to give that person a good seven minutes to take whatever. Imagine if that, that you're going to have to come up with some questions. Maybe you're going to have to invite them out into the space. But one of the things that people say all the time is I didn't want to make them feel bad. And I'm like, wow, that is a narcissistic response to the idea. They are already feeling bad. What you are going to do is end up making them feel alone. Right. And they don't deserve that, especially, and you don't deserve that if you're trying to love them and you're thinking about them, but they have no way of knowing that let's bang it out and be awkward and uncomfortable. And, you know, I think there are some things that people say we can make lists. You and I know what they are, the terrible things that people say, people should stop saying those things. But I would even argue that it's better to have someone say something bad, wrong, that is well-intended and hurt your feelings than to double down on the idea that you are going through something and therefore you're a bit of a pariah in that process. And one of the things I say to folks all the time is, listen, you know, when I became a mother, things were super dicey there for a second. My friends who didn't have kids, we didn't relate as well. They didn't know what to do. They kept inviting me to bring my child. I didn't want to bring my child. I didn't know if I was supposed to bring my child, but nobody was looking at that. Like I was doing something wrong. They were, they weren't, wow, Megan, you're really doing mothering wrong. They sort of give you a breath of like, yeah, all that shit's really hard in the beginning. And it, you know, it's different. I have three kids, the first one and the third one, it wasn't all the same. But nobody looked at that and said, God, you're really failing at it because it's so awkward, uncomfortable, and hard. Right. But I use that analogy a lot with folks, which is like, listen, it's a new role in life that similar to becoming a mom, I will never not be a mom for the rest of my life, regardless of where my children are and whether we're speaking or not speaking, whether they're alive or not alive, I will always be a mom. And grieving is the same. You become a griever. You are a griever the rest of your life. And people who are able to not be afraid of that can incorporate that definition of you so that you can ask about it, talk about it on holidays, 10 years from now, right now, whatever it is. 
But I do, I just go back to the idea that if we taught this better, I mean, you have this amazing section in After Grief. I think it might be when I was like, I don't need another grief book about mourning clothes. When I was really like sick with PTSD, you, you talk about the trajectory of how we mourn and what over time and in history. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. You talk about yeah. sort of when people wear black clothes and why we stopped wearing black clothes and what oh, the-, the Victorian morning yeah. rituals, they were so elaborate. You would oh. go from wearing black to wearing gray to wearing purple. And that told people if you were in high morning, right. middle morning or low morning, which automatically signaled to anyone who looked at you because there was a certain kind of dress that you wore. Yeah whether your loss had happened very recently and you should be handled very carefully and tenderly or whether your loss had, you know, already started receding into the past. And then perhaps, you know, you could be approached in a different way. It was like sending a signal to society. Hey, Amazing. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I'm recovering. Treat me kindly, carefully, gently. Right. With the expectation that that is what society is there for, is to take you in as a person and include you as opposed to, I I do a fair amount of work with companies and God love these companies because they're reaching out to me because what they want to know is how do we navigate this new space, particularly in COVID, but when there's a loss at their company or whether it's an executive person or whether the, the company has been in, is in a city where there was a significant tragedy. Really, there are some great folks that are asking this question of, you know, how do we, how do we approach our employees so that they know that we have them in mind? And the idea of morning clothes to me, I'm like, bring them back. That is amazing. You don't have to wear them if you don't want to, but imagine if what I did was I walked into the supermarket and the way that I feel, which is completely nuts because my dad died two days ago and the earth is still spinning on its axis and I still need to get milk that the guy at the checkout register would have a way of being able to validate that. Like, wow. You bereaved. I'm so sorry. I lost my mom, you know, to be able to talk to each other instead of what we do instead, which is I'll give you an hour on your work, on your lunch break to go to your therapist, but zip that back after those 50 minutes and then please come back to work. Or three three days of paid bereavement leave. And after that, you can take more time, but it won't be on our dime. Absolutely. You know, the the extreme, most extreme example of this that I've ever experienced, uh, well, I guess at both ends, is in uh, January of 2017, I went to Thailand. Mm. And everyone in Thailand was wearing black. I, I was thought, God, it's so hot here. Why does everyone wear black? And the markets were filled with clothing for sale. And so much of it was black. And I thought, hmm. And you know, I'd been there only for like a day or two before, you know, I, I just asked someone and, and, and the king had died the entire country for a year, in whereas black is in mourning and out of respect for the, you know, the loss of their king, their very beloved king. And I thought, oh my God, an entire country coming together so that a foreigner coming from the outside, who's ideally more educated than I was, would know this is a country in mourning. Now we have nothing really here. I mean, there, uh, you know, I'm Jewish. So in Judaism, you pin a black ribbon to your clothing 
for I believe 30 days after someone dies. And that is a signal in the community of people who recognize that symbol that I am in mourning. And so when I was 17, I thought I wasn't, my family wasn't particularly religious, but I needed to do something I felt, you know, I was like craving some kind of ritual. And I remember pinning it on my clothing and most of my friends had, would have had no idea what that meant, but a friend's grandmother saw it and asked me why I was wearing the ribbon, you know, thinking this, she's wearing it for the wrong reason. Like, doesn't she understand what she's doing? And I told her and she was so distraught that I thought, I don't want to be wearing something that will upset someone else so much, you know, to be the outlier in my community. So I pinned it like to my bra for the rest of the 30 days. So no one could see it. But I had this idea, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I thought, what if, you know, we just had like some kind of bracelet, like a Livestrong bracelet that a griever could wear. And you just see it on their hand when you go to the grocery checkout line, if that person is giving you a hard time, you know, in front of you in line or, you know, and you see that bracelet on their wrist, you know, oh, okay, this person is having a really hard time. Like, let's be kind and empathetic and give this person a little bit of leeway. I mean, not to be abusive, but maybe to not be acting like we would expect to see in public because they've just gone through a big trauma. What if we had something like that where for 30 days, someone wore a bracelet that just said, Hey, within the past 30 days, I've had a trauma. Something really hard has happened. And I'm trying to figure out how to live in the world again in this changed world. So just treat me a little more gently than you would normally treat a stranger. I think that would be, I don't know that that anything like that would ever take off in this culture, but I think it's a marvelous idea. I would, I would spearhead or, you know, support that effort. Well, you and I should talk about this because again, I think if my friends and family were in this room with us, they would, they would perhaps roll their eyes. But similarly, I thought, you know, that Pandora bracelet company that has all those charms, like, why don't they just make a grief charm? I don't happen to love those bracelets, but like, why isn't there a way it's so difficult and you, and you feel so crazy that, you know, why isn't there a way that we could have a, there there are pink t-shirts for breast cancer. There are orange bracelets for cancer. There are, you know, why isn't there a way? Why, why wouldn't we want to allow people to have more space? And, you know, part of being grief educated and part of when I'm lecturing to companies, you know, some of what I'm saying to them is it's similar to being aware, like you asking people for their pronouns, you know, in order to change a culture, we have to do that deliberately. And we have to remind ourselves. And when we forget, we have to go back. And I, I think asking about recent losses, is anyone more, is anyone in mourning as a question in a, in a, you know, executive retreat, I'd love to know if anyone has a physical injury, if anyone's in mourning. When I was training in trauma, one of my mentors, I do body-centered therapy, and one of my mentors said, the only time you should not sit in the chair is when you are in physical pain, because your client will feel your physical pain. And I thought, I have back problems. That's not true. They're not going to. They're not. And then I started asking my clients. I'm not aware of how much you're aware of my body. And my clients were like, yeah, well, you had, wasn't your back kind of bad a couple of weeks ago or wouldn't you? And 
part of what I was so aware of is all those micro movements that I've been trained in to be attuned to in trauma that are at the base of attachment that are drive anxiety for people that there is no reason why we can't be owning up to grief that people can feel our grief, but they don't know what it is and they will interpret it however they want to interpret it. But if we want to change the culture, just literally saying, I'm going to remind myself to ask about it and talk about it. I'm going to remind myself to ask. Okay. I'm just going to, can I say something to your listeners, which is that please Megan and I are meeting right now for the first (laughs) time. And I really love this woman. Oh. And I, we're like an idea factory because I'm writing things down left and right. I mean, I, we think we're thinking on the same wavelength here that it's time for a really big paradigm shift in this culture, not just how we think about grief, but how we treat the mourners yeah. among us. It's high time that well, I mean, it's high time because a million people in this country have died. And one of, and again, I don't mean to keep saying that After Grief is such a great, great book, but one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that you do talk about other cultures, that you're not saying grief is such a taboo subject, no culture can do it well. You give beautiful examples of other cultures that do a gorgeous job with grief oh. and loss and our own culture historically used to do it better. Well, that's because grief is very, very much culturally relative. It's historically relative. You know, the way that people treated grief in the 1950s is in many ways different, in some ways the same as in as in 2020. But, and even within American culture, you know, we're not homogenous here. Different yeah. communities have different Absolutely. experiences, which is one of the things that has made me nuts about the, the new DSM diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder. Oh, and your letter wish- was so beautiful. Thank oh, you, you saw the letter, yeah, with Rebecca yeah, Silver. The, the, issue, the issue that I'm going to start talking about more and bringing to the forefront is that we also have to start thinking about, I think it's imperative that we think of grief, the larger culture, meaning white culture, recognize that grief is a social justice issue as well. And one of the things that made me so angry about this prolonged grief disorder designation or diagnosis, which for your listeners means that after one year, a therapist can diagnose a client with something called prolonged grief disorder, that will allow them to get insurance coverage for therapy and medications, which is fantastic. We all need that. No one's arguing that. No one's arguing arguing that. that. But in particularly in communities of color that suffer traumatic or violent losses of loved ones at higher rates, you know this as a trauma therapist, people may not get to the grief part that's right. For a year or more, they have to stabilize the trauma first. Otherwise, every time they try to grieve, they're going to come up against that trauma response, which is terrifying. So why would they, you know, grieve if every time they do that, it's going to reactivate trauma symptoms or somatic symptoms in the body or intrusive thoughts. And I feel that, you know, so someone may come into a therapist's office after three or four years because they finally are stable enough to grieve, feel safe enough to grieve, can take time off of work, don't have to focus on survival needs or child care or elder care. Yeah. The idea that someone can attend to their own grief needs in the very first year after a loss is a very privileged position. 100%. 100%. And 
again, we're also talking about the agency and the, the sort of purchase around understanding even what grief is. So, so you're going to love Mer- Marissa Renee Lee's book. If you haven't already read it, grief is love, because that's the, at the heart of her book is really social justice. That is what she's talking about. She's talking about grief in marginalized communities and that, you know, there is even, even privilege, you know, I took six months off. That is an incredible position that I was able to be in. I'm not sure what I would have done. I'm not sure that doing the kind of job that I do, which is, you know, full on contact emotional was even an option otherwise, but I, I really don't know what I would have done if I wasn't able to get the sort of treatment that I needed and required. And when we're talking about people coming into, you know, you gave an example of someone coming in because they're ready after three years. What I see in my office is someone who has symptoms that are debilitating after three years because they are in, they are experiencing traumatic loss, but they haven't had any agency around being able to make an hour for themselves or the money for themselves to be able. And so only when they're, you know, borderline not functioning, are they able to come in and get treatment? In my mind, the educational component, because, and I talked to Mary Frances O'Connor about this, you know, the one thing to me that is universal is that we grieve with our bodies and our human bodies do have some things that are relatable across cultures. And so I have a curriculum that I've put together and, you know, I just wrote it for myself because it, when I get on my soapbox, I get crazy. But what I believe is if we were able to educate, and honestly, part of the reason I do some of this work with corporations is that I really believe in capitalism. And I really believe that they drive a lot of change, a lot of social change when they, when, you know, executive leaders buy in that they provide more than one company has sort of said like, oh, I'm going to extend the number of EAP sessions now that I have heard what you're talking about. We're going to purchase more mental health care. We're going to think about having someone come in, but being able to educate folks so that they understand that this is not something that is pathological, that it's something that we need a lot of support around the the new diagnosis. I got into sort of, you know, one of those terrible things that you should never do, which is a back and forth on the internet. It may have been your article on modern loss. I, I said something somewhere and somebody came back and said, you know, you're only speaking from your own personal experience. You're a grief expert. You should be talking about this with the facts and the numbers. And it's only 6% of people. And I said, I, you know what? I don't trust that number. I don't trust the number of only of people 6% who- of people are sort of the catchment num- number who they believe experience prolonged grief. Oh, disorder. really? That's so low. I mean, even the Center for Complicated Grief in Columbia says 12 to 15. Yeah. So the number that's sort of rolling around is like only 6%. And what I've said is, listen, if you have people that don't understand what grief is, they don't know what's going on in, in your five aspects. They don't understand that that's all grief. They don't know how to address it. They don't know how to talk about it. I don't believe they're going to report it. I I wrote an op-ed for the Chicago Tribune recently after listening to, I can name it here, Brene Brown's podcast. Brene was talking about interviewing two social scientists who were looking at the great resignation, all the people who are leaving their jobs. And I thought, okay, they're going to, this is taking place in COVID. This is going to be a whole 
podcast about grief and loss. And these social scientists named five things and not a single one of them was grief and loss. The thing that was the closest that they could come to was that they people were feeling disrespected by their bosses. And the way they did the data was it was around Glassdoor and looking at how people reported why they left their jobs. But I don't know anybody that would say I'm leaving my job because my mom died and I can't cope. What they would say is my boss is being unreasonable. And bosses think I gave you three days off. You went to the funeral. I gave you an extra day. I was so nice. I asked you how you're doing. I'm doing such a good job. And that educational component of like, listen, that is not how this goes down. And it's not such a tiny little percentage of people who have trouble and people don't seek supports because they don't even know, they don't even know what's going on with them to ask and seek support. And there is a tremendous lack of education, but I think there's also, you know, this, it goes beyond even educating people about grief. It kind of involves educating people about how to be human and how to be empathetic. You know, I've heard people in the workforce say, well, it's not my job you know, to pay, be paying attention or, you know, worrying about the emotional needs of my employees. And I say, well, then maybe you need to find another job. Yeah. You know, maybe you shouldn't be managing people yeah. because this is what managing people involves. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't involve the granular details, personal details of their lives, of course, but something as fundamental as loss you need to be educated about what that's going to do to the people in your workforce, because pretty much 100%. everyone in your workforce at some point in their life is going to be in a state of grief, whether it's because someone that they love died or they're going through a divorce or they lost a, a pet, you know, a beloved pet. I mean, something like that can affect people's performance. Oh, 100%. So if productivity is your goal and getting people back into the office is your goal, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we only have a couple days of paid bereavement leave, then learn how to support them when they get back there so that they can remain productive because otherwise you're gonna wind up with a whole bunch of medical leaves of absence because we can only keep the lid on the pot for so long Yeah. if we are not allowing ourselves or don't have the permission or aren't giving ourselves the permission to let the steam out. It would be so amazing too, if people, you know, similarly, there are other things that happen in, in workplaces, like there's sexual harassment training because everyone agrees we shouldn't have that. And there's diversity training because everyone agrees that that is something that we should be promoting. And it wouldn't be, we wouldn't have to, you know, make giant changes in workplaces in order to say, bring in grief informed experts who can, There's never been a single time that I've given a lecture that somebody hasn't come up to me and been like, wow, that was, that was a lot of stuff I didn't know. Right. In my mind, I'm like, there's no reason why you shouldn't know it. You should have learned it your senior year in high school. You should have gotten it as a class, you know, mandatory class in college. It doesn't even have to be that extensive that there are some core elements. And then when people feel like they have those core elements, then they can become leaders and conversationalists and change agents around Mm -hmm. the idea that we have to do this in private and we have to do it alone. I was raised in church and in church, the way that it works is the priest is the person who reenacts the last supper so that everyone gets a host or a piece of bread. But when there's a very large congregation and one priest, you'll be there forever. And so instead they have 
blessed and ordained several members of the community so that more than one person can help out. And what I feel like right now is the numbers are really staggering. They're going to be everywhere. We're going to be grieving in all the places we should have enough information for people to feel like I can be a lay server. I can help out here because I'm going to be helping myself out. By the way, the one thing we will all be one day is grievers if we haven't yet already been. And those are called mutual help groups, right? Like AA, for example, is a mutual help group. We are going to start later this year training lay people Mm. to be motherless daughters support group leaders with a program that is, that is created by us, you know, by us, I mean, me and, you know, my, my very, very small team team. of amazing, amazing women. And so that we can get in-person support and online support out into the community, because like you, I'm just one person. That's right. I'm there every Tuesday and Thursday for the community calls right now. But at a certain point, I hope that'll be unsustainable because the need is so great as more women learn about the calls and want to join them. We will need more and more people helping to run them and having them on different days and times so they can occur all around the world and having groups where women can meet others in verticals, you know, like it wouldn't be great, you know, to be able to join a group just for women who were under the age of 12 when their moms died of cancer or a group just for women who were teenagers, if you lost a mom suddenly to an accident or a sudden health event, or a group just for women who lost their moms to suicide, because these are particularly, these are groups that really want to find other women who know what it was like to have experienced these details, you know, of a loss and the echo effects that occur throughout a lifetime through into adulthood, if you become a parent, you know, how it informs your parenting, what it means to reach your mother's age when she died and then pass it and live longer than your mother got to live. That's a really major transition for this population for anyone who lost a parent, a same sex parent and men who've lost their fathers talk about the same kind of, you know, profound transition they make when they cross that threshold as well. We call it crossing the silent threshold because there's so little community or cultural acknowledgement of that event. I have to let you go, which I do not want to do because I could talk to you forever. When you were talking about your community calls, it was making me think, and you may, you may know this in the UK, they have this thing called the, the grief cafes. Is that what they're called? Good grief cafes. And they have an orange umbrella and they put it out. And that lets folks know that, and they did this during COVID even, that people are congregating here as essentially sort of an AA group, right? Like people congregate here for a grief meeting. So you can go in and go to the cafe and they'll tell you, yep, we have this group and they meet here on Thursdays. Those are the kinds of like grassroots things that I feel like if we could just break the ice of people understanding that you and I know it's going to happen. It's probably going to happen in two to three to five years, right? The folks are going to be trying to get back into the, the their lives and their symptoms are going to show up later, which is why that prolonged grief disorder stuff doesn't help us. But we are going to have a whole bunch of people who need resources in the next few years, not right now. And I mean, people do need it right now, but they're trying to survive right now. 
And that will absolutely be a social justice issue because the same people who don't have access to those sorts of resources right now are going to have less access, more need. They were more impacted by COVID. I mean, it's, I don't mean to be doomsday about it, but I do feel very energized. I feel like we could tip this. I don't think it would take that much for people to understand that we need to change how we're approaching this. And the example that I use pretty often is that, you know, we did it, we did come to understand that pronouns really matter and the way that we came to understand that we needed to be changing the way that we do. And I understand not everybody does, but as a culture saying, what are your pronouns? People aren't like, what the hell are you talking about? They've heard that before because the population of folks who were struggling with gender identity had the highest suicidality rate. We don't want that. We don't, anything that we can do to help those young adults find another way forward, that is is what we're going to do. During the Black Lives Matter movement, people were picking up books and they were having really tough conversations. I feel like with grief and loss, it's going to be simpler than those two things, which we have already decided that we want to be part of that conversation and part of that change. With grief and loss, the Jewish community, I feel like for a million zillion years has been teaching us traditions that are rooted in body and mind that really are impactful. We have other cultures that outside of the U.S. that can teach us ways to do this. I don't want to see an increase in addiction beyond anything we've ever seen, which is what I'm afraid of if we don't help people get support and understand that they need support and just provide more oxygen around this, around grief as being part of life. I agree with you completely. I I think, you know, it's a matter of calibration, right? There's this dial here on the left, which is cultural distress, which can get turned up really high, but there's a dial over here on the right that I think we can just sort of turn up the volume a little bit on and it'll make that difference. That's right. That's right. And so what I say to people is pick up a book, There are a million really good ones out there. Even if the book that you pick up is a memoir, someone's personal loss story, that is as useful as any other book you're going to learn. Ask someone who's grieved my best friend, God love her. You know, when my mom died, she came into the house and she said, give me your mom's phone book. And she called all her dentists and her doctors to tell them that my mother had died. So those 30 phone calls I didn't have to make. And I said, how the hell did you know to do that? And she said, I asked my other friend who lost her mom, what she wished someone had done. So she, so ask a griever, you know, maybe someone who isn't in fresh grief. If you need to be a supporter, get some advice from someone, listen to a podcast, you know, participate, ask folks, because the listening is how we're going to do the learning. And I just, everything that you're doing, I am watching, admiring, and I am so grateful for this conversation today. I could have a weekly call with you and we would never be done. We um, might, that might be, that might be an outcome of this interview. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wrote down a a whole list of things as well. You gave me so many ideas. Thank you for things I'd like to crowdsource with the community too, to help educate people about the experience of women who've lost their moms and women who've grown up without moms, but it's applicable to really anyone who's suffered a major loss in the past. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for this.